This is Infrastructure Junkies. Welcome, Infrastructure Junkies, to your show. This is a podcast created by right-of-way professionals for right-of-way professionals. The Infrastructure Junkies podcast is the voice of the right-of-way industry, exploring eminent domain, right-of-way acquisition, and infrastructure development. Right, we are back for one of our most popular installments on Infrastructure Junkies, the Roundtable Session. And if you've listened to us before, you know how it goes. We have two guests with us. Each of us brings a right-of-way topic, which is on our mind to discuss, and a pop culture topic. And with us today, we have Wade Brown from American Acquisition Group, where he's the president and CEO down in Jacksonville, Florida. Everybody knows Wade is an all-around great guy. He and I are Virginia guys, both of us, even though he doesn't live here anymore. And we're both huge UVA fans, for better or worse. And right now, that's pretty much for the worse. (laughs) Yeah, the worst. We also have with us Mr. Ross Green, our friend, and who has been on our show many times and has ticked off appraisers on multiple occasions. They deserved it. They totally deserved it. (laughs) Ross is an attorney representing condemning authorities exclusively. He works with Pender and Coward. He's licensed in North Carolina and Virginia, and he's the chairman of his firm's eminent domain practice group. Hi, fellas. Hi. Hello. Hello. All right. Well, hello. They're so right. excited to be here. Yeah, Come on, guys. It's not like it's six in the morning. All right. Well, let's get into it. Kristen, you're going to take the first substantive right of way topic. So tell us what's on your mind. Okay. A little background. So my mom just got this new new job. She's a retired teacher and she's got this little side hustle right now. She's been hired to, she goes around to schools in Texas and randomly like sneak attacks and goes and she has this checklist and it's to check for security because since the Uvalde shooting that was that happened in the spring, all of the Texas schools are required to do all this stuff to keep it. You've got to have like a, a, all the doors have to be locked all the time. You can never prop them open. You have to ask people for ID and I don't know, samples of their DNA when they come in the door. There's all this crazy stuff that has to be done now, which is awesome. As a mother of school-aged children, I appreciate it. But they've hired her and many others to go to these schools and they, you know they walk around and check to see if the doors are locked. And then they go in, explain who they are and make sure that the front desk people are asking for the right forms of ID or they're just like checking all the boxes. And if they don't get it right, they, I don't know what happens. There's a penalty. But I told my mom, I'm like, this is like infrastructure at a school. I mean, it's crazy when you think about that Uvalde shooting happened in spring, Texas, way to go, Texas, that got something right, decided we're going to have all these safeties in place when the school year starts in the fall. And they did it and they did it fast. I thought about TEA, which is the Texas Education Association. They They got this done so quickly, such a fast turnaround. And they've even got these people who are going around and checking it. And that happened so fast, but that's infrastructure, man. And I started thinking like, I I am in the industry of infrastructure, but I don't think I've ever quite thought through really what infrastructure means. So if you have infrastructure in a school, what else is infrastructure? So I looked up, okay, definition of infrastructure. In my mind, I'm like, well, electricity and highways and stuff, right? That's infrastructure. Everything is freaking infrastructure. The definition of infrastructure is it's the system of public works of a country, state, or region, or the underlying foundation or basic framework of a system or organization, or the permanent installations required for military purposes. So like... Amazon's infrastructure is insane. I ordered a package yesterday. I'm in Virginia right now. I got a picture of it on my porch this morning. Like what had to happen from me ordering a book and then it getting to my door and me getting a picture of it on my front porch. So 
Dave and I were talking about like the other day, electric vehicles. And we talked about it on this show and how there's going to be these charging stations. That's crazy infrastructure. What about space? What about space? Like, what about all the space debris? Like, who's in charge of that? But anyway, the con- just the concept of infrastructure kind of blows my mind. And I think it's a miracle. That's all. I think it's miraculous. And I think what we do in infrastructure is miraculous. I think Amazon is miraculous. I think what my mom is doing and what the schools are doing is miraculous. Because it, it just blows my mind. Yeah. And I think what you're saying is the breadth of... You know, we sometimes we think of infrastructure as roads and bridges and tunnels. Yeah, right. And that's... Because that's how I got started in the industry was, you know, acquiring property for roads. But it expands to so many different areas, including shipping lanes. I never thought about that. What about wind power? What about solar? What about these other things? Right. It's almost, it almost touches everything that we do. So how come the four of us collectively are considered the bad guys so often? There's the question for you. Yeah. Why? What we do is miraculous. Oh, yeah. I was talking to one of our groups and our industry over some adult beverages one day. And one guy told me he gets in these type of arguments about eminent domain, especially, and all we're the bad guys and we do this. And the guy said, Hey, did you wake up this morning? We're able to flush the toilet, turn your coffee on, cut the light on. Well, somebody's got to get that power there. Somebody's got to get that water there. Waste has to go somewhere. So if it wasn't for us, you know, being able to enable those services to be provided, your way of life wouldn't be the way you know it. Yeah. And the amount of the steps that have to be taken from you don't have a flushing toilet to you do have a flushing toilet. How many people are involved? How many steps are involved? It's it, it really, I can't even conceptualize it in my brain. I can't, I well, think it's a miracle. It, 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 yeah. And I know down here in Florida, just South of me, cause I'm in Tampa and the storm Ian just hit a couple of weeks ago. And I mean, I know my area avoided it, dodged a very big bullet. Yep. And the impact of what's happened just 75 miles south of me, if you were to go down there, I know just my client with the Department of Transportation has ceased doing procurements on everything else and focus on getting that area back up and running. Wow. The importance of what we have to do, I mean, just reshifting funds on our projects. I mean, you're going to be impacted by these natural events all the time. And I've been through a couple of hurricanes down here and just not having power for a week down here in this heat is enough to you really appreciate what you have in terms of utilities and infrastructure and what they're going through down there because a lot of the water hasn't even receded yet. And the flooding, the damage, and not having the air conditioning, your normal services that we definitely take for granted each and every day. And I didn't think about our importance in that process over time. But, you know, the more that we've been talking about it, that's our WBA's mission. I think it, you know, yes, we do have a good purpose, and it's an easy way to explain what we do. Ross, any thoughts on the topic? Well, I mean, I've never had any problem accepting that I'm the evil one and that I wear the black hat. Like, it doesn't <laughs> affect me. I don't have to tell myself that I'm good to accomplish my purpose. I feel like most people have to convince themselves that they're the good guy for their sort of internal narrative in order to go about their business. Everybody goes through these sort of mental gyrations to convince themselves that they're good and that the other people that oppose to them are bad when the reality is it's all depends on where you sit. I mean, if you ever have the unfortunate experience of being on the other side of our work, you very quickly find out that being in the industry doesn't get you out of the sort of negative externalities of the industry when it turns around and you're the 
landowner or that, that then you have to deal with us from the other side of the thing. And when you occupy that seat, then you find out how the other side feels about it. And it all depends on your viewpoint. I mean, we can come in and say, we're the good guys, we're here to help you. But I mean, if you ever think about it from a historical standpoint, the government telling you that the gov- we're the government and we're here to help. We're here to help you. Okay. <laughs> sure. Ross. That, that's a thing. Right, um, right. So it's all, everybody's kind of got to come together to work on projects for the public good. And I think we at IRWA go out of our way to try to understand that position and that putting yourself in the shoes of the other of the other side is part of being the best possible negotiator and getting the project done because it's that empathy and understanding and relationship and trust building that you let you work your way through tough projects, going and sitting with people and dealing with them and understanding them. That's what lets you get the project done, not just saying, oh yeah, we're the good guys and they're the problem. And maybe it doesn't even matter for the good guys or the bad guys. I just, I wish people that we dealt with understood how miraculous infrastructure is and when things work, maybe maybe it doesn't matter for the good guys or the bad guys, but I just, I'm blown away by what we do. Well, we're off to a good start. Off to a good start. Let's not get too heavy yet. Wade, what's on your mind in pop culture or non-right-of-way? What you got? You know, when you told me to come to the, I mean, it came to me right of way. And again, living in Florida, I live amongst, what's the best way to say, older adults. There's a lot of challenges living down here amongst that. And one of them is slow drivers in the left-hand lane. Oh, gosh. Is there something wrong with that? What's wrong with that? (laughs) You are the problem if you don't realize it's a problem. Right. And living down here in Florida, again, with our older citizenry, tourists that I think get across the state line and just, I forgot how to drive. Now, I admit I'm somewhat of an aggressive driver and I have (laughs) quite a large truck and I have a heavy foot. And we don't mix. And I go down the road to where I'm actually pulling up beside them when I'm able to, if I haven't scared them from the headlights in the rear window being right on top of, I do pull up and I look at them and I go, I gotta know why. The fascination was slow. What is the fascination was slow? It's 2022. We want to get everywhere. We want to do things fast. What are you doing? Tourists are also worse. Can we wait till after the peak hour traffic? to start riding down the street with Martha and looking at the beautiful, you know, hotel over there. And what is that over there? And let's almost stop while everybody in peak hour traffic is trying to, you know, sort of get that. It's just, it's very frustrating. Ross. So I know, so I've got to know, I've got to know that everybody feels my, this way. You really hit a nerve with me when you said you, you got to know. And picture that is when somebody's doing something crazy, I've got to see what they're doing. Are they on their phone? Are they texting? Are they just slow? Like what's happening? But, Ro- yeah, I got to know. I do this. I do. I look in the window. I go, what are, I, I got to know. Right. Do you give them a look or are you just observing? Because I both now I get a lot of reaction. I'm probably flipped off on the average of five times a day. You're and, and, not and serious, Wade. I got when I'm going. I got to go. My son has actually picked up some of my rants because when I'm driving with them now, it's quite an adventure for our family trips. But 
I've gone so far as this. I was riding with an employee of mine once several years ago, and we were riding in South Florida. Now, South Florida is even worse than where I live up here in Central Florida. It's just craziness down there. I let her drive from the airport. We were going to see a client. She gets in the car. I let her drive, and we're going down and holding up I-95 traffic in Miami to the point that we were getting such bad looks. I made her turn. I was like, you got to pull over. You got to pull over. I can't take this anymore. You're never allowed to drive with me ever again. And I asked her, I said, you're the first one I could get my hands on. What is the fascination with being over here and holding everybody up, getting the meanest looks ever, along with a lot of obscene responses from other drivers, which can take. Ross, do you agree with me that Wade Brown is a maniac? That sounds like, yes. I mean, that sounds like he's the guy. It's like Mad Max Fury Road out here, and he's just yes. laying on the horn yelling. Like, yes. yes. That's me. <laughs> you know, riding shiny and chrome, just like up behind people. The real question I have, though, is it the sharks driving slow in the left lane? Like when they're swimming down the freeway, like are they the ones just like flipping you a fin when the shark's driving down the highway? Yeah, I get a lot of this. I get a lot of this and slow me down. And I think they take on this role. Like I'm responsible for controlling traffic. And I'm like, you got the wrong guy to try to control. Right? I, you know, I got to find out. And yes, it's I'm not, It's not a pleasant It's not a pleasant ride with me. I think most everybody rides me knows it's pretty stressful. My flipping blood pressure is going up just talking to you. I'm stressing out. <laughs> I'm stressing out right now. Did, wow. did nobody yeah. else see the video where the shark is on the freeway? No, no, no. Well, I mean, this is a fake video. It's it was photoshopped. It's been around for a decade. Every time there's a hurricane in Florida, you see this purported. Oh yeah, right. Uh, I remember what you're talking. Yes, yeah. swimming down the freeway. But then apparently this time they actually had a real one, where the shark is like in somebody's neighborhood road, like goat, like swimming. Mm -hmm. Saw uh, that. And they were like, oh yeah, it's real this time. Like street shark is actually real this time. Sharknado. I just didn't know if it was the sharks flipping Wade for. Maybe. All right. Well, that's pretty good, Wade. Yeah, like you're stressing me out, so we got to move off of this topic, Ross. Yeah, get me off of it too. <laughs> I'm afraid. I'm afraid your blood pressure might go up, and you might actually have a stroke. Be that's, a first... just normal, that's just normal day for me. <laughs> <laughs> you always seem like such a laid back guy whenever I see you, and I didn't know you were a maniac. Have you been in the car with him? Maybe I think that's what a lot of people would. I think a lot of people would describe you that way, Dave. You're very laid back. Okay. All right. Well, I agree with that part. <laughs> Ross, right away, Ross. And that's his handle on Twitter, by the way, at right away, Ross. What are you thinking about your right away topic? People might have already understood this. I saw it the, a few months ago and it just kind of blew my mind. It's this thing called the Interstates to Boulevards Initiative. And so we always tend to be working on road projects. It's, that's a lot of infrastructure in the sort of main default thought process about roads is we got to widen the road. We got to widen the interstate. We got to make it bigger. We got to make more of it. And it turns out that there's at least one group, if not more, that I've seen online pushing this narrative of instead of build more roads, widen interstates, it's to remove them and replace them with green space or I think a lot of the things I've seen that they cite as removals might actually be more like undergrounding cap projects where you take the interstate and shrink it to some extent and then put it underground and then replace the previous footprint 
with an at-grade green space or mall or boulevard, bike path, etc. So more of a pedestrian-friendly, people-friendly environment. I mean, when you start looking into this thing, you see a lot of different motivations. I mean, economic ones about it makes downtown situations much better and more valuable to not have a giant freeway just cutting everything in half with cars running down it rather to have green space that everybody would like. There's definitely a social justice component to it where a lot of the existing urban freeways displaced pretty neighborhoods when they were originally put in and move those people to other places and less advantaged places than downtown and taking that highway out and putting it back to a downtown more feeling helps fix that. I just thought that the whole concept kind of blew my mind because it's the opposite of the default. Instead of saying, you know, let's put more lanes on the highway to address traffic, which this movement says doesn't work because of the concept of induced demand that when you build more lanes, just more people get on it so that the traffic doesn't fix. That just go in the opposite way, just from a big idea standpoint of instead of let's build more, let's build less or build differently. Or unbuild. Another way. Well, maybe not unbuild, because when you talk about it, then you get the initial sort of knee-jerk reaction is, well, there's no way that would work. It will just turn every other neighborhood street into the Audubon because, you know, where's the traffic going to go? Right. But, you know, they cite a lot of different projects and that have done it. And then some of these, Kristen, that they were listing is things that you'd probably know about that they want to get rid of would be talking about getting rid of I-345 in Dallas or I-35 in Austin. Oh my gosh, Uh, I-35 is the biggest nightmare of my life. Right, so if there's a way to instead of, hey, let's spend billions of dollars just knocking down lanes to put in more lanes on something everybody already hates, is there a way to just move that or replace that in some other way. But this is what I don't understand about this whole concept. So I-35, the reason I hate I-35, it goes from, I. you can go from Dallas to Austin on I-35. And there are places, like if, when you go through Waco, where it's just like bottlenecks, it's horrible in Hillsboro. But when you get to Austin, there's... If you need to go downtown in Austin, I don't really know another way to get there from up here besides to get on I-35. And the reason it's a nightmare is because there's too many people on it. There's way too many people on it and it's not big enough. So if we're like, well, let's just make part of I-35 some green space. Okay. We're going to build a a different I-35 and call it something different. Like the people still need to go where they're going. I don't understand. That's there. I don't get it. And there, the idea here seems to be people will find a way to get there. (laughs) <laughs> and it may teleport. Okay. <laughs> you can walk. No, but if you on your green space this way to get there conceptually, this freeway, but everybody, because it's the easiest and most direct way, has that thought process, which is I'm not going to go to the mental effort of finding some other way to navigate there. That's the way. That's the only way. There's no other way. Even though when you sit there and think about it, there's other ways to get there. That's just the easiest one in your head because you're like, oh, yeah, if I need to go to here, I'm going to take this highway to get there instead of, oh, there are other surface routes. I mean, most people wouldn't know this. I don't know Austin or Dallas well enough to say this, but Dave knows around here we've put in over the years additional freeway linkages that make it so you don't have to take the old way to get there. But the old way to get there in a lot of cases is still there. Around here, it's military highway. 
the military highway was the original way to get most places in Tidewater. It's a at grade four lane, just normal road, not elevated, limited access highway. And it was the way that you got everywhere. It has bridges and tunnels. You can get there on military highway, but people don't even think about it now because you just take this loop structure freeway that everybody's built and everybody just, if something breaks down in that structure, you just sit there and gridlock. Like, yeah. you know, somebody has a wreck on a tunnel around here and most of the population is just sitting on the freeway when the reality is, oh, if I got off, I could just take military highway and take the existing at grade road to where I need to go and not be stuck. But they'll just choose to sit there and be stuck. You no, know, Ross, and, that that's a, let me bring that home for you. That's actually a really interesting point because our, I know most of our listeners aren't familiar with this area, but I think you'll understand the concept is our main office is in what's called the town center section of Virginia beach. It's in central Virginia beach. And when I leave to go home, I head east as far east as you can go in the city of Virginia Beach. The default way to get home is to hop on Interstate 264, and there's an exit right by our office, and head east out to the coast, right? I don't go home that way. That's where everybody's going home, but there's always a bottleneck. There's always somebody broken down. There's always traffic there. I get on what's called Virginia Beach Boulevard, which is frankly full of stoplights, but I don't have problem with traffic. And, you know, I got, I never realized, like, I, it makes me kind of want to throw up in my mouth to get on the interstate voluntarily. I don't want to get on that interstate. Only bad things happen there. Well, Ross, this whole concept, who's, do, who's doing this? Like, where's this coming from? I don't know that there's necessarily, I'm certainly not a member of any movement. I just saw it online on yeah. the website that I clicked on because it was cnu.org. So I thought it was Christopher Newport, which <laughs> is that where your daughter goes to school? Yeah, it is. Yeah. So I was like thinking, I was like, what's Christopher Newport doing? And instead it's congressforthenewurbanism.org. So I'm not endorsing this at all. I just don't know anything about what's behind it. Yeah. I just saw the idea and was saying, wow, that's an interesting idea because there's definitely, and they, the website contains a bunch of examples of completed projects huh. where people have taken out highways and replaced them with other things. For example, the big dig in Boston, which I know people have talked about here, I'm not sure is exactly an example because I think it's significantly undergrounding a lot of that project and then having green space on top of it. But there's other projects all listed on this website where people look at loops and the like and how they vary or a downtown from the mm -hmm. rest of the city. Mm -hmm. Like if you have a, you know, a ring road, and I know in Texas, there's several cities that where the, now they have multiple ring roads. It's like the idea is, here, let's replace a ring road with a ring road with another ring road. And then you've got hey, different. Hey, listen, I'm on a project in Lubbock, Texas, where I know Wade met his wife in Lubbock. I went to Texas Tech. There's a loop in Lubbock. They're building an outer loop now in Lubbock. And everywhere in Lubbock that you go, you get on the circle and you go around the loop. And there's a lot of political stuff going on right now in Lubbock with people that are talking about the effects of the loop and the new loop on the people who are inside the loop and the people who are outside the loop. And it gets very political very quickly. So, all right, Ross, that was a great topic. This episode is brought to you by the Eminent Domain Practice Group at the law firm of Pender & Coward. Today's guest, Ross Green, is the chairman of that practice group. Ross represents condemning authorities in Virginia and North Carolina through all phases of the right-of-way process. Did you also know 
that Ross publishes a right-of-way blog? Check out his blog and reach out to him anytime at rightofway.law. That's rightofway.law. Kristen Bennett and I sure hope that you're enjoying this episode. When you finish this show, please check out our new website at infrastructurejunkies.com. That's infrastructurejunkies.com. While you're there, please sign up for our mailing list, and you might also check out our new exclusive content. We have a new second podcast called Infrastructure Junkies Unfiltered, which is published weekly, and we discuss whatever is on our minds. Check it out. Also, follow us on the Twitters at IJPod, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and we're even on TikTok. You can find us anywhere. Thanks for listening. New topic, pop culture, my turn. One of my favorite topics to discuss. We could have a five-hour podcast just on this. And let's talk about rock and roll lead singers. Yes. Who are the good ones? Who are the crummy ones? And what makes them good? And what makes them crummy? I'll start off by saying that probably my favorite lead singer in rock and roll is Eddie Vedder of all time. I just can't get enough of his voice. While Eddie is a fantastic vocalist, he's not the best. Chris Cornell is a better or was a better vocalist. Chris doesn't agree with me. Chris Cornell was a better vocalist than Eddie Vedder. False. I will also say Axl Rose was, no longer is, a phenomenal vocalist because he could hit it all. He didn't fake it. Like, Eddie can't really go high. Chris Cornell can go high. Axl Rose can go high. And then you have this other genre of lead singers. I loved Lou Graham of Foreigner. Why? Why? There's really nothing great about his voice. But I just, I couldn't get enough of Lou back when he was in, in his singing prime. And then you have bands like Motley Crue is those three great guys, meaning Tommy Lee, Mick Mars, and Nikki Six. And then they got this ding-dong Vince Neil who can't sing a lick. But for some reason, he's really famous. We can also talk about, I mean, I don't want to go on too long, but female singers, the same phenomenon. You know, Whitney Houston's probably the greatest female singer of all time, as far as I'm concerned. Mariah Carey Correct. sucks. Yes. I don't like Mariah Carey. I don't like anything she's ever done. The Lou Graham equivalent to me would be Natalie Merchant when she sang for 10,000 Maniacs. I loved her voice. Is she a great singer? No. no she's tinny. She's got a very tinny voice. She's very limited in her range. But I thought she was a great front woman for that band. Anyway, those are my initial thoughts. And again, we could discuss this for five or six hours. But I figured I'd open it up, see what you guys think. And by the way, you can't disagree with me on any of my taste. So with that. Oh, I'm going to. Ross, did you want to go first? And then I'm trying to take a deep breath before I say what All I'm right, going to say. Let's somehow limit the discussion of, you know, best vocalist to... Dave's specific preferred subgenre and like <laughs> don't get me started on Billy Squire. Oh boy. Okay. One of the best of no. all times. No, I mean, none of these guys are even in the running since the best one possible is Freddie Mercury. Oh, and I can't you're really deny that. Have to run up to Elton John and Billy Joel immediately thereafter. Okay, no. Uh, Elton John, not a good vocalist. Not good. Billy Joel is one of my favorites of all times. Billy Joel admits he's not a great vocalist. He admits it. I love his voice. It's very limited. Well, you got one thing. You got one thing. You got two things right. Mariah Carey sucks. And also Eddie Vedder is the greatest of all time. I, you said Whitney Houston is the greatest female vocalist of all time. Let's take female out of there. There's yeah. never been on this earth a better singer than Whitney Houston 
period. That's Sorry. Probably true. I'm serious. I think she was magical. Now, okay. I'm going to just address the Chris Cornell thing real quick because I can't leave that alone. Chris Cornell could sing high. It hurt my ears. I hate his voice high. And I'm so, rest in peace. He was an amazing musician. When he sings lower in his lower range, oh, goosebumps. Like he's such a good vocalist. But when he jumps that octave and starts doing that screechy thing, it's screechy and strident and abrasive. Thank you. Wade. Wade, back me up here. Help me out here. I mean, I mean, I know you used to be in a breakdancing group. You can back me up. <laughs> you got some cred. Yeah, we did. We were more synthesizer type of music, Kirby Hancock type feel. <laughs> right. uh, but going on what you said, I was going to be saying Axl Rose. I don't think anybody can hit high notes like he can. I mean, just his screech and welcome to the jungle that we hear every Saturday in stadiums. I mean, if that doesn't get you going. Right. You know, <laughs> an atmosphere socially or you're back to knock somebody's head off on the kickoff return. You got to give it a spot. Here's what I will say about what I think is worse. Probably going to offend a lot of people. Bob Dylan. Oh, I, I, horrible. I, 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 every time I heard him, even as a teenager until I, I'm an adult, I hear it and I go, you know, this. I, I hear people that are fascinated by him. Oh, my Bob Dylan. I'm like, I, I, I don't get it. I, I never will. I was like, this guy would be booed off of any contest. I, I don't know who sits around and says, hey, you know, let's have a beer and sit back and listen to the little Dylan here on Friday night. Right. No, he, you know what? He was, he's a poet, not a singer. He wrote some great lyrics. I want to say Very true. it's baffling to me though, when we talk about this stuff, because I'm a trained classical singer. And so sometimes I will hear people sing and I go into like voice teacher mode and I get, but then there's people like Janis Joplin. I love Janis Joplin and her voice is so damaged and awful. And she probably had like nodules and smoker's cough or something. I don't know. It wasn't a beautiful, clear voice, but I loved her voice. I loved Janis Joplin. So I don't get it. Maybe it's, sometimes it's because you have a really good voice and sometimes it's because you got that je ne sais quoi. Well, well Kristen, I'll follow up with this, Kristen, that you'll appreciate because she's a loving girl. I think is one of the best singers ever. <gasps> Natalie Maines. Yes, I love, I've I seen mean, her in concert. Oh, Yeah. She's, she's got a great she's, I think an unbelievable voice. Is she the one that was like said the bad stuff about George Bush and got herself canceled for a while? Yeah, so stupid. Yeah, I mean, I'll... I, I, you know, that aside, I'm not going to talk about uh, my thoughts on that right now. Dave, we can have a discussion later, but I will not take away from her singing. She's right. one of the best singers ever. Okay. Love her. All right, I, Wade, since you're talking, it is your turn to discuss a substantive right-of-way topic of your good, choice. Good topic, by the way, Dave. Thank you. You're Thank welcome. You. And uh, my opinions are always correct. Speaking from... As a right-of-way consultant, and I'm sure, Kristen, you've run into this as well. One of the challenges that is creeping up more and more, at least in my line of business, is working with other professionals within our industry that don't understand right-of-way all the time. And I'm talking our contractors, our engineers. God love them. You're going to have some good ones that understand the challenges that are presented to us as right-of-way professionals. Some just don't. And those can be just long days when you're in the kickoff meeting and contractors not understanding that we have to give minimum of 90 days to people to move. What do you mean you can't go out next week and get a $300 appraisal and go make an offer and close within two weeks so I can have my bulldozer ready to come in and knock down the house? You know you're in for a long process. They already have unattainable schedules nowadays because, again, we 
we live in an environment now, of course, everything is tomorrow and design build projects. I mean, that's a whole nother animal that, you know, things have just got to be done. We got to get asphalt laid down and we got to get traffic moving. But, you know, right of way is always seen as that, oh, you're just in the way. But <laughs> it's very frustrating for the, you know, you're, I find myself having to do it more and more going into meetings and educating people versus like, let's establish our schedule, our protocol, our reasonable strategy, prioritize, segmentize, whatever we need to do to help get the contractor going as quickly as possible. They just don't understand compliance to our federal procedures, the state procedures, the time to condemn. And the fact that guys, we're the only one in the process having to deal with an uncontrollable mechanism. Other people. I can't go out there and beat these people over the head and sign, you know, and I can't just get you this property to more. It's more and more now because I think schedules are always being compressed. I think we all see that in everything we do now. Schedules are just, they're unattainable a lot of times. They're trying to maneuver the best they can to get the funding that's available out there. I think we're all pretty busy right now with an infrastructure bill. So even more municipalities are getting involved now that have not been in infrastructure, eminent domain projects. Well, Ross, I think Wade got far enough into the discussion. I know you have stuff to say about this. I know you do. Everybody has their problems in this. I hate to both sides everything here, but, (laughs) you know, that's kind of, I guess, what I'm going to be doing here because everybody has their goals to attain and, you know, their desired outcomes. And so we do take a lot of the, I guess, pressure as everybody wants to blame right of way as, you know, sort of their scapegoat for, oh, I I can't mobilize my construction crew because right of way didn't get this cleared or whatever. And I'm like, well, yeah, because all those variables are under your control. But whereas we have to deal with the uncontrollable externalities. We have to do things via permission and get things from people voluntarily. A lot of the rest of the participants in the process do want to use us to excuse them from not doing their work. But, you know, that's just sort of the thing. I mean, and then we get to deal with their negative efforts anyway, because the construction guys then go outside the right of way, you know, drill wrong. Dave and I had a case one time where they were supposed to do subsurface lateral drilling and the drilling machine broke and then curly cued off into this like land and like made a spaghetti nest under it. And, you know, that somehow became our problem, even though it was the construction contractor doing the stuff wrong in the first place. So we're just the scapegoat. Well, I, you know, wait, this is an interesting topic. I've definitely run into this. In fact, just a couple of weeks ago, I got a call from an engineering firm that was doing a design build project and they needed some help because nobody ever considered that right of way needed to exist. It wasn't even part of their, they'd already, they already had a contract and they were already like doing work under their contract. And they're like, oh yeah, who's going to get these people out of the way? Who's going to buy that? Like just this, it was a city and the city just forgot, just forgot. (laughs) They forgot we existed. Well, you know, one thing I thought I was thinking, Wade, when you were doing your initial comments, and I think Ross would back me up on this and put it much more eloquently, but sometimes the engineers engineer themselves into damages to the remainder of certain parcels of property. They're not worried about, why don't we not screw up this property and cost it an extra million dollars? I don't know. Are are they trained to think about that or do they just not care? Or are there some engineers who are more right-of-way focused than others? But like Ross, we've dealt with that on several occasions, haven't we? Yeah. I mean, I I make the engineers mad all the time because they're just like, 
I don't know, very engineery. You're like, yeah, you know, <laughs> there are people involved in this and they have concerns and they're like, there is a project. I must build it. You're like, well, you know, we do have to deal with, you know, the general public. No, we must proceed in the straightest possible line. And it does not matter how many parcels we impact. This is the straightest possible line. It's like, you know, if you move that three feet to the side, you wouldn't destroy that building. And they're like, but that is the straightest possible line. You're like, <laughs> okay, right. I hear you, but that's going to cost us much more. Well, I wonder if in their heads, they're like, well, that means we will get paid more. Right. Like, the more buildings we destroy, the more we get paid. Like, I don't know, maybe that, like, uh, the engineers will get so mad. Yeah, and uh, hadn't there been occasions where we're, we're like, hey, can you just put this BMP somewhere else? I know, I know you can put it somewhere else instead of right in front of this property destroying their access. Yeah, they're like, let's put this BMP in the hard corner on the most valuable lot. It is right. the easiest <laughs> place to put the BMP. Right. Like, let's not do that. Please, right. thank you. All right. Well, that's a pretty well, good... Go ahead, Wade. No, I was going to say, you know, in Florida, when we are instituting condemnation, we can't just file a certificate based upon the transportation commissioner saying that it's needed. We have to prove each and every taking with necessity of a good faith estimate of value, which requires if the order of taking that we have for each individual parcel is not... If, Florida buyer negotiations down here a lot is getting attorneys to stipulate to the OT and not try to fight it. Right. And the ones that are fought or contested, you know, the engineers have to go up there. Somebody's got to sit there and testify to the necessity of the take. So when I'm in these meetings, and it's very interesting to see their perspective change from those that have not really been in eminent domain projects here in Florida, especially when they said, well, we just need this. Go try to get this weight. If it doesn't, you know, back off and say we need 20 feet instead of 30 or what, whatever it is. And I'm like, okay, but you understand that uncertainty. You know, if you go both ways, you get consistency. Somebody's going to have to testify to that necessity. When this you know, eyeballs go straight open right then, meaning like, yes, you're going to, you or one of your compadres are going to have to sit on that stand and support everything you're doing. And usually I have to have the wonderful legal community like you and Ross to come back and back me on that. And then everybody's okay. Well, let's go back and look at this project and we'll get back to you. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, great topic. Great topic. Thank you for bringing that to the discussion. I think we probably bit our tongues a little bit because we didn't want to get into hot water. Kristen, pop culture on your mind or something non-right-of-way? Yes, and it's very important. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, God. Okay. Okay. I have a pet peeve, and it is when smart people talk stupid. Okay. And I'm going to give you a couple of examples. Number one, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I mean, not just ours. And I usually listen to podcasts by people who have also written books. And I listen to, I'm a, she don't know me. She's not gonna listen to this. I'm going to, I'm going to throw it out there. Glennon Doyle. She wrote several books that I read and I really liked, and she has a podcast. And on her podcast, she and her sister talk about all kinds of things. But the other day, both of them, each of them said the word drowned. Okay. Is that not a word? Drowned. Drowned. And I'm like, you are a freaking published author and you're saying drowned? And I got really upset. There's another lady who I've listened to her podcast and she is a doctor and she has written books. And she and her co-hosts say, when they say important, they don't pronounce all of the letters and they say important. It's really important. And I'm like, well, I, 
<laughs> what are we doing? Now, finally, I would like to talk about vocal fry. And that is when someone, and it's usually females, they do not speak in the correct part of their voice and they do it's like an affect that they're doing on purpose and they are doing it on purpose to sound cute or something or like stupid or like pretty or like something like that and they <laughs> it doesn't always have to have that like valley girl accent sometimes it's just like i talk like this because i'm i don't know why and it, it sorry girls who do vocal fry it makes you sound so stupid and i probably sound really arrogant right now and i'm sorry but i'm not so that's my topic any thoughts on that where do we start with this who wants to jump in on this one i'm gonna get canceled because i'm arrogant canceled a long time ago i I agree with kristen i agree with kristen on the vocal fry and in fact i think howard stern about a year ago had like a whole segment on this because I don't watch a lot of these bachelor shows and all the you know, shows that they have on network television right now, but I guess it's like one of the biggest things on those shows because he talked about it. They were actually breaking down each of the girls as they talked. <laughs> I think it was the bachelor or the bachelorette, whatever it is, but it, I hadn't noticed it before until I started listening to him. And then almost the yes person, it was irritating me. And the more they did, it was like this one girl kept getting worse and worse. And now I find myself, I'm actually like, judging every show that I'm watching. There's <laughs> any type of vocal fry being done. I just already immediately hate you. you right. Know, like, right. Because you're right. It, it's attention seeking. You're doing it on purpose and you sound so stupid. But like, who likes that? I don't understand it. Hey, I have a solution for you. If you're listening to this podcast and you're like, oh my God, do I do that? Here's yeah. how you know. Yeah. If you wonder, you are the one. <laughs> yeah, you are the one. But here, there's a trick to know where you are supposed to speak. And I'm going to teach it to all of you for free. And it is this, you whisper the letters QX about six times, whisper them only, and then let your voice come in like QX, 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 QX. And where you're talking, when you start saying the words again and pronouncing the Q and the X, that's where your voice naturally wants to be for your speaking voice. So I have, I've told that trick to people who talk like that and then they're like i'm supposed to talk up here and i'm like yes that's correct it's easier and you don't sound stupid you know the other thing that frequently happens that that drives me it's similar to what you're talking about drives me crazy is people who they're talking and they go up and they end their sentence like this and i (laughs) then and then i'm going to go to the store and then after i go to the store i'm going to get in the car and then i'm going to get in the car and get some gas you're like is it are you asking a question presentation like that oh no and that's a problem I think that makes you sound. I think that makes you sound stupid, <laughs> Ross. You're scowling. What? I was just listening to you, to the discussion. I don't know anything about this and don't need to get canceled because if I know anything about vocal fry, that it's some sort of talking point that is not in the area where I should be talking. From. You use it. Is he doing no. it right now? <laughs> no. Well, I don't know. No. Uh, Okay. All right. Thank you for letting me just get that off my chest. Yeah. It bothers me. Thanks for the TED take. Thanks for getting us canceled, Kristen. Jesus. I'm going to need my a new pleasure. co-host. <laughs> All right. It's my turn for a substantive topic. And I'm kind of, this is a little bit vague, but I want to talk a little bit about quote unquote air quote negotiations or negotiators. All right. And I put that in air quotes. I'm not really sure why it's called negotiations or negotiators. But that being said, it's one of the absolute most important components of the right-of-way process. Important? Oh, it's one of the most important components of the right-of-way process. (laughs) Stop. (laughs) And a 
air quote negotiator needs a broad spectrum of skills to do her job well okay stop <laughs> all right seriously it's such an important position but it i think it's mislabeled okay it seems to me that negotiators, the least of their duties is actual negotiation. In fact, sometimes they never even air quote negotiate. A negotiator wears many hats and it's really a right of way agent is what it is, a classic right of way agent. They have to be able to read plan sheets, which is more difficult than you think, have to be able to perform some rudimentary engineering processes which is more difficult than you think, needs to be able to write well, needs to be able to construct a initial offer letter, has to be very organizational when they put together the initial offer package, have to be excellent communicators to be a good right-of-way agent, have to have compassion, you have to have great demeanor, you have to be able to connect with other people, and most of all, you've got to be very patient. The other key component of this is you've got to be able to explain things in simple terms. And number one, the acquisition. But number two, the effect that acquisition is going to have on the remainder of the property, even if it's not built on property that was acquired from the landowner. So I guess my point is this segment of the right-of-way spectrum just seems to be overlooked. People are always talking about appraisals or appraisers. Relo gets a ton of attention, I think, because it's so specialized. We've already had a discussion about engineers, but your good old-fashioned right-of-way agent, I think, is too overlooked and requires a bunch of training. And I don't see how you can perform that job without having taken a bunch of different courses, an IRWA course are great starting points for that. So, Well, and I think what you're saying is it's, it's not appreciated enough, that position in our industry. It's like, oh, well, that's the easy part. Yeah, that's the easy stuff. I'm not worried about that. I, I God, that relocation, though, that's really tough. And relocation is tough. I'm not I'm, I'm minimizing relocation at all, or certainly not minimizing appraisal, but I think we just have a tendency to look beyond the negotiators or look beyond your rank-and-file right-of-way agents. And it's also, as you said, a bit of a misnomer. I mean, when you think of a negotiation that's a back-and-forth, nego- there's not that much negotiating going on, no, right? No, it's more explaining and communicating. And at least in Virginia, the negotiator doesn't really negotiate. It presents the offer, explains it, does not solicit a counteroffer, according to the VDOT right-of-way manual. And if a counteroffer is made, then they can take it back up the line. But they're not, you know, they're not sitting there like Chris Voss trying to get the best deal that they can possibly get. They've been given an appraisal and that's the bullseye for the negotiator. And that's what they've got to hit. Yeah. You know, I used to, when I started out in this industry, I was buying easements for an oil and gas company. And when, remember I would go out, I had a checkbook that belonged to the company and I would go out there and make an offer and I would have a range, you know, we can pay between 1500 and 3,500 an acre, just start where you want and get it closed. And so I could go talk to a landowner and offer them, you know, two grand an acre. And they'd be like, how about 25? And I'm like, done, I'll write you a check. That was negotiating, you know? Right. But this that's not really what we do. Wade, how many you have on staff? You know, we have over 20, 25, you know, negotiators. And I would say that everything you said is accurate, Dave. In every state, every region is different in terms of the latitude that's offered to negotiate. Because things I've ever said, and I, you know, when people come and interview for me for negotiated positions, you know, or I'm trading new employees that are interested in it. I tell them the biggest thing, listen, I, you know, I can look at your resume. I can see what education you have and what classes you've taken and all of this. But 
understand that negotiation is not for everybody. It's you have to be able to have a thick skin. I almost say you should have a degree in sociology because sure. the biggest thing that I could put into a negotiator is the ability to meet people and read the situation. I've been in negotiations with agents that I may have been training or going to observe. And obviously, you walk into a situation, you know the project back and forth, you know the appraisal, you've read it, you know what severance damages were based upon, comps in the area, you can go defend everything. And then you see this, it's, they have no demeanor about them walking into the situation where this owner has no concern about that, but she has something very personal to her that she's very emotional about. And you're trying to, you know, put a square peg into a circle hole. I right. mean, they, it's like, you got to be able to read the situation. So a lot of this comes down to your ability to read, knowing when to defend yourself or when to back off, when to hammer a point and when to listen. And just like you said, it's got to be a, a mixture of all of them. But I said, because you don't have thick skin and you don't know how to interact in, in very confrontational situations. I mean, I had one one person I worked with many years ago that I worked under. He said, you know, we have one of the hardest jobs there is and we have a reverse sales, obviously. We're trying to sell to somebody to give us something that they have and make it seem like a good idea. Right, right. So I think it's a challenge, but it just goes back to me. You just have to be able to have a sense of dealing with people and a rapport and understand that every situation is going to be different, just like every property the impact is going to be different. Right. Ross, I know that you were on a project in North Carolina at one point where you were hired as an attorney and found yourself in a negotiator's position as boots on the ground. Oh, yeah. That consultant that did that project, for some reason, I forget why, I think something to do with scheduling for a different contract or having been contracted for a time period, ended up pulling out without finishing negotiations on several parcels. And so I ended up doing them, finishing them. And that was, I mean, that's certainly enjoyable for me. I mean, it's really no different than what I end up doing day to day versus, say, landowners. I mean, you have to just work out the deal with the people, get to understand what they need in between constantly telling them that I'm not their attorney and that I don't represent them and that I can't advise them, but still find out what it is that they need or want or what their, like Wade was saying, what their particular value points or pain points are in the process and finding a way to to get to a resolution with them. And that wasn't, I mean, it wasn't easy, but it wasn't hard. But then again, I'm, you know, in our role, we're not constrained by whatever the right-of-way manual of the particular entity says. There, By the time it gets to us as outside counsel, it's let's just solve the problem, you know, whatever way you can. Oh, did they right. agree? Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, there's more time for us to, you know, sit with them, develop a relationship, learn from them. A lot of consultants and right-of-way agents don't have that freedom from either project scheduling or manual requirements or just the way that they're managed. It's okay. Did you make the offer? Okay. You delivered the package. Okay. So check the box and move on, not spend the time necessary. Cause if you just show up one time, you know, or even worse, don't go meet them in person at all. Just mail mm -hmm. them, you know, a brick worth of paper. Right. At which point, I mean, these days, I don't think anybody's going to read I mean, you're lucky if they read two pages, you said that much less that they're going to sit there and read you know, a telephone book that you 
shows up in that front in the mail with a government label on it. That they wouldn't understand anyway yeah. in most cases. Right. I mean, they don't know what they're looking at in most cases. Right. You know? Right. Well, Ross, since you have the floor, pop culture, what's on your mind? Oh, like, well, I mean, let's see. So the preface, I, had, I did have a topic in mind. And then let's see, what were the words? We're going to relentlessly make fun of you about this when the topic <laughs> was suggested. And so now I think I'll switch my topic to, let's see, like what sort, what, what, like what was it, slow drivers before? So now we can talk about which side of the day room people want to sit on in the retirement home. Like... Like, I don't know. What are you Actually, these. What's happening? Are you having a stroke? <laughs> I am not having a stroke. The uh, So I like, compared to everybody on this call, I liked nerd things. And so compared, like, what I was going to talk about, well, I guess what? Just do it, Ross. Okay, I will tee it up so that y'all can tee off on it. I like watching nerd sort of television. So I like watching, currently there's a Game of Thrones show on House of the Dragon. And currently there is the first Tolkien show on the first Lord of the Rings show, The Rings of Power. And so, you know, there's been a lot of sort of discourse in this universe online and Twitter and the like of everybody trashing on one or the other and trying to say, one or the other is better, but I guarantee the other three people on this show have never watched an episode of either one of these things. <laughs> I don't even know what you're talking about. Franchise involved. But then again, <laughs> these are the same people that don't like Star Wars and have never watched Star Trek. I've watched Star Trek. <laughs> Ross, Ross, listen, here's the deal. There are people that listen to this show that probably like those things too. So why don't you tell us the ring thing and the Tolkien thing and the, are they, you like them? I mean, which one's better? Okay, let's go to the first thing you said. What was the dragons one? <laughs> Is that Dragon Ball Z? Drag That's a whole different discussion, Dave. Okay, like, what's I mean, the dragon? It's all the show? same to me, brother. House, House of Dragons. High fantasy and anime are all the same to Dave. Um, so let's see. Yeah, so the drag you said there's a new dragon show. What is it? House of Right, yeah. So you had Game of Thrones. Did you ever watch Game of Thrones? Not no. one second of one episode. No. Wait, do you have any idea what I'm talking about? Ross, do you want me to lie to you or do you want Yes, to lie to me and make me feel good. That's what I want. <laughs> I do know that the lead character in Games of Thrones, the girl, white hair, Cheru the Dragon, right? She was hot. <laughs> Okay. All right. Success. Success. We have participation on the show about my nerd topic. I will declare Super. it a win. Like her name is Daenerys Targaryen. But Daenerys. I, yeah. I agree with you, Wade. Like up until they ruined it in the last season, and she turned out like I'm anyway. It's, they ruined the last season of that show. So the the <laughs> takeaway here is: had Game of Thrones. It was immensely popular. We might have the only three people on here that never watched it. Uh, Fair. And that might be HBO true. HBO ruined it. And then they have since released a new Game of Thrones show, which is a prequel called House of the Dragon, that so far ruined, but everybody's waiting for the shoe to drop for them to ruin it. Like so far, it's moving along nicely. Uh, then you also, in competition to it, because it's weird, studios seem to always have the same type of show on two mm -hmm. different channels. Like, oh, you're going to release a great big expensive nerd show. We have to have a great big expensive nerd show too to like, you know, compete for market share. So over on Amazon, we have Rings of Power, which is not 
not George R. R. Martin's Game of Thrones, but Chris, but J.R.R. Tolkien's, you know, The Hobbit, Lord of the Rings, uh, a show in that universe, but also a prequel. And so they're kind of going head to head, running at the same time. But I think I agree, and the general nerd consensus might be that the Game of Thrones show is way better. The Tolkien show is trash. It's like college drama students reading <laughs> lines for like their first intro to drama play. It's like a Midsummer Night's Dream and they're, you know, reading, you know, Puck's initial monologue. And it's just, hello, my name is Puck. Here is an exposition drop about facts about me. Right? And you're just like, Dave's oh my God, you spent a billion dollars on this show and you couldn't pay anybody that can act? Like, I mean, it's just a, it's just a shame. And then the people come out and like, it's like, how, where did you spend the money? That armor is made of plastic. Like, and it's obviously made of plastic. Like, what is this? An expensive cosplay? Like, I don't even know. You like, just said so many words. I don't even know what you're talking about. This is hilarious. I'll tell you, Ross, I love you. I don't do Middle Earth, swords, sandals, dragons, like I fantasy outer space. Like I just cannot. But this is really entertaining me to hear you describe them. And I'm sure there's probably one or two listeners who will appreciate your analysis of the nerd shows. Yes? And on that note, I think this is a good I think this is a good time to, to wrap it up. So Wade Brown, Ross Green, thank you for joining us for the fourth installment of In infrastructure junkies and we'll see you next time bye-bye thank you thanks y'all hi this is david burgoyne from the national right-of-way review appraisal company i'm happy to be here in cleveland ohio for the irwa conference and i want to say when i heard judy jones say she was unhappy that people didn't think she looks like an appraiser i look in the mirror and think that she should be very happy that she doesn't look like an appraiser